Reflections on William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 4. Culturally and historically, everything depends on the form the mimesis of violence takes. If a given act of violence achieves its, quote, cathartic quotient in the first instance, or if it is sufficiently mythologized in retrospect, it can come to be regarded as sacred violence. As such, the unavoidable mimesis for which it becomes the model can be channeled into ritual repetition. The spiritual contest that underlies all the physical ones is over which side can most convincingly perform the mythological and or ideological gestures that will valorize its violence and criminalize the violence of its adversary. When these gestures succeed, the mimetic fascination focused on the violence spends itself ritually and not historically. In other words, to the extent that we achieve what is experienced as sacred violence, we can hold culture together after that by reenacting it and remembering it and repeating it in ritual and mythological form. Violence which fails to achieve sacred status becomes the mimetic model in a more straightforward way. In the way, for instance, that's the, that the violence of the Vietnam War exacerbated rather than reduced domestic rivalries in American political life precisely because its mythological and ideological rationalizations were too weak to sufficiently neutralize the misgivings awakened by the visible horror of the war. The real drama so far in Julius Caesar has centered around precisely these attempts to perform the required mythological, ritual, and psychosocial gestures necessary to turn vulgar violence into holy violence. So far, such attempts have failed. The inevitable result of that failure is that each episode of violence has become the model for the next. The intensifying mimetic rivalries that accompany and exacerbate this spiraling violence can sweep away with supreme ease what at an earlier stage of the crisis had seemed bulwarks of moral principle. One of the most alarming and most revealing moments in the growing frenzy of mimetic escalation occurs when we pass from what seems to be the violence of passion to the violence of cold calculation. To witness the latter, what we call cold-blooded violence, is always, as we say, chilling. This involves a perpetrator of violence acting without what we might call mythological immunity, which is to say that he actually knows at some level what he is doing. His culture has failed to provide him with the moral novocaine which will salve his conscience and the moral camouflage which will pacify his onlookers. Without this mythological immunity, he must either abandon the game altogether or conjure up his own justifications for it or else learn with Nietzschean resolve to live more or less without justifications at all. In Act 4, Scene 1, we turn now to the what we can at this point in the play call the counter-conspirators, uh, Anthony, Octavius, and Lepidus. Anthony, Octavius, and Lepidus are, are the three men who will comprise the new Roman triumvirate after this whole affair has run its course. And Shakespeare wrote a play about this triumvirate called Antony and Cleopatra, or at least it deals in large measure with the nature of this triumvirate. So in a sense, we're getting, towards the end of Julius Caesar, we're getting the first in a sequel of studies of this whole Roman business. And uh, Shakespeare is is uh, connecting the two the thrust of the two plays in the last part of this play here. So we join Antony, Octavius, and Lepidus in Antony's in a room in Antony's house. And the first, as I was saying, chilling line is Antony saying, 
these many then shall die, their names are pricked. In other words, these three preeminent Romans who are going to, who are going to be the triumvirate soon are sitting in a room in Anthony's house making a list of the people that they're going to kill. But get a feeling for the, for the arrogance of this scene, particularly on Anthony's part. These many then shall die. Their names are pricked, meaning put on the list. Octavius, your brother too must die. Consent you, Lepidus? Lepidus, I do consent. Octavius, prick him down, Anthony. Lepidus, upon condition Publius shall not live, who is your sister's son, Mark Anthony. Anthony, he shall not live. Look, with a spot, I damn him. Now this, Shakespeare could hardly have been more straightforward. <clears throat> they are not only listing people they're going to kill, but they are, they are bartering back and forth each other's family members. I'll sacrifice one of mine, you sacrifice one of yours. Fine. With a spot, I damn him. Anthony then says, But Lepidus, go you to Caesar's house, fetch the will hither, and we shall determine how to cut off some charges and legacy. Now, remember the will? He had made a lot of the will when he was giving his great funeral speech, right? He, uh, he inflamed the passions of the common people by telling them that Caesar's will was going to give them each uh, 75 drachmas, which, uh, which stirred up their political interest uh, considerably. And now, he says, go get that will. We're going to have to change it. We're going to have to alter it. Uh, we're not, after all, going to be able to afford 75 drachmas each. Uh, why? Well, because we have a military project underway, and uh, we have to fund it. So if you will bring the will here, we will monkey around with it. And uh, a few daycare centers um, won't be missed. <laughs> By the way, I, I want you just to realize that I too know that uh, it's very hard not to use scapegoat language. That is to say, language that scapegoats somebody else. Uh, I uh, I try to I'll work this out between myself and my confessor. But <laughs> in the meantime, in the meantime, my profession requires a certain amount of <laughs> sinfulness. You know, Jung wrote to uh, Richard Wilhelm. Carl Jung wrote to Richard Wilhelm when he was in China, and nobody could, had heard from him for a long time, and everybody thought he was being lost into in some kind of uh, Oriental mysticism. And Jung wrote to him and said, uh, "May your uh, may wicked desires pin you to the earth so that your work can go on." <laughs> So anyway, I realize that, I'm, that I occasionally uh, resort to what essentially is scapegoat language, and uh, I'm sorry for it, but maybe it helps us get a handle on other aspects of the system. Now, Lepidus leaves. Now, you know this in Shakespeare. We know Shakespeare well enough to know that you have three and one leaves. Now, this does not mean that the, that the triangle is disappearing. It actually means the triangle is coming into play. As Lepidus goes off, Anthony says to Octavius, This is a slight unmeritable man, meet to be sent on errands. Is it fit the threefold world divided he should stand, one of the three, to share it? Now, as I said, this is not the collapse of the triangle, it's the formation of the triangle. The triangle consists of Anthony, Octavius, vying for political power and preeminence. So that's the triangle. The object is political supremacy, and the two competitors now are Anthony and Octavius. So this is the coming into being of the triangle. What Shakespeare is presenting us is the earliest little symptom of what reaches its crisis in later Roman history and in Shakespeare's work in Anthony and Cleopatra. Anthony is using Lepidus in a scapegoat way here, in that he is building a, an alliance with Octavius at the expense of Lepidus. He, said, he goes on to justify to uh, Octavius why he wants to eliminate Lepidus. Though we lay these honors on this man to ease ourselves of diverse slanderous loads, he shall but bear them as, a, as an ass bears gold to groan and sweat under the business. 
either led or driven as we point the way. And having brought our treasures where we will, then take we down his load and turn him off, like to empty ass to shake his ears and graze in common. And that's pretty cold and cruel. Octavius says, you may do your will, but he's a tried and valiant soldier. And Antony says, so is my horse, Octavius. And for that, I do appoint him store of provender. It is a creature that I teach to fight, to wind, to stop, to run directly on, his corporal motion governed by my spirit, and in some taste is Lepidus but so. He must be taught and trained and bid go forth, a barren-spirited fellow, one that feeds on objects, arts, and imitations which out of use and staled by other men begin his fashion. Do not talk of him but as a property. Now that we've eliminated Lepidus, we have two equals. The subatomic uh, physicists say that there are these particles that, that, that last, uh, that have a, a half-life of some, you know, some fraction of a nanosecond. Well, in the Shakespearean cosmos, likewise with two equals. See, how long will they really remain equals before the mimetic thing sets the thing in motion? For instance, remember Regan, when Regan was giving this her, her, her false-hearted speech to Lear about how much she loved him. She said her, her older sister, Goneril, had made a speech about her love, and then Regan had said, I am made of that self-metal as my sister and prize me at her worth. In other words, we're equal. In my true heart, I find she names my very deed of love. 1,001, 1,002, 1,003. <laughs> Only she comes too short. Remember that? There you have it. That's how long it lasts. Well, likewise, Anthony has just uh, eliminated Lepidus, and he and Octavius are equals. The speech, which I just quoted of Anthony's, which talks about Lepidus being a horse and so on, begins with this line. Octavius, I have seen more days than you. Now, once you're on to what Shakespeare is on to, you recognize the seeds of the crisis in these little references. Octavius, I've seen more days than you. In other words, we're perfectly equal, but wait a minute. There's a couple of little things. I'm older than you are. Speaking of Lepidus, Anthony says to Octavius, he's a barren-spirited fellow, one that feeds on objects, arts, and imitations, which, out of use and staled by other men, begin his fashion. In other words, by the time he gets around to desiring something, wanting something, imitating something, it's already out of fashion. See, this guy is so slow on the mimetic uptake that he will never make the grade. See? He's saying, we are the trendsetters. We are ahead of our time. We are so quick and facile to be on to the next thing. And this pork, we're wearing Gucci loafers. He's wearing hush puppies. This guy is no, nothing, you see. He doesn't know. He's slow. That's exactly what this passage is saying. And therefore, he, he's no good for this game we're playing. And it, in a certain way, it reveals the whole nature of the game. It's such a mimetic game. He's going to be trailing along behind all the way along. He's not quick enough at this game. It's constantly changing its focus, its object. It's this one day and that one day. And this, this guy's always going to be several days behind. The fact that there are... The fact that there's an interest in fashion and styles and uh, that there are trendsetters and so on is a symptom of the disintegration of cultural uh, standards. Trendsetters give their lives to the business of making and maintaining distinctions which are so empty of meaning that they can only maintain their claim to significance for a few months or a few weeks, or if Andy Warhol is right, 15 minutes at a time. So the more and finer the distinctions made by the trendsetters, the deeper the crisis of distinction. We go back. Now, so what Shakespeare's doing, he's just bouncing us back and forth from 
the the Antony Octavius Lepidus camp, which really now is Antony and Octavius, and Brutus and Cassius. In other words, we just keep watch watching these uh, this whole mimetic thing unravel and check in on each side as it goes along, see how it's doing. Well, Brutus and Cassius are a little farther along, but there's no third. So they didn't have to stop and go through this little awkward thing of getting rid of their third party. So they they allowed them to just proceed on towards the abyss without making that pause. So now they can go straight to the business of... of uh, of uh, eliminating or subordinating uh, each other, so Brutus is receiving one of the, the one of the servants of Cassius, Pendarus. And when Pendarus comes in, Brutus says, "Your master Pendarus, in his own charger by ill officers, hath given me some worthy cause to wish things done undone. But if he be at hand, I shall be satisfied." So there's a little some we got a hint that something's going wrong. And then Brutus says. In an aside to Lucilius, a word, Lucilius, which is Brutus's servant that he had sent to Cassius, a word, Lucilius, uh, how he received you, let me be resolved. And Lucilius says, with courtesy and with respect enough, but not with such familiar instances, nor with such free and friendly conference as he hath used of old. Now, this is so typical of Shakespeare. Shakespeare does this all the time. What's happening here? Well, what is happening here? Brutus is going to tell us. Shakespeare is going to tell us through the mouth of Brutus. Brutus says, Thou hast described a hot friend cooling. Ever note, Lucilius, when love begins to sicken and decay, it useth an enforced ceremony. A hot friend cooling. That's a wonderful phrase. We should go back and read scene one of Act Four with this uh, with this idea in mind, because in scene one of Act Four we have Antony and Octavius becoming hot friends. That is to say, hot friend. Let me define hot friends in the glossary of terms we're creating here. Hot friends are friends that come together at the expense of a scapegoat. That's a nice term. I think we ought to use that. But but we should be warned by Shakespeare that it cools. Hot friends cool. When hot friends cool, that means the same the the same. Uh, little disease that allowed them to come together is now going to break them apart. And Shakespeare said it perfectly in Anthony and Cleopatra's book. That which is the strength of their amity shall prove the immediate author of their variance. The echoes here between the two, two camps are, are, uh, are many. But one of the most interesting for me is Brutus uh, is now talking about Cassius to Lucilius. And he says, when love begins to sicken and decay, it uses an enforced ceremony. There are no tricks in plain and simple faith, but hollow men, and he's talking about Cassius, like horses, hot at hand, make gallant show and promise of their mettle. But when they should endure the bloody spur, they fall their crest and like deceitful jades sink in the trial. Now, notice the metaphor. He has said of his opponent, he was really his ally, but becoming his opponent, Cassius, that he's like a, a horse. You treat him like a horse, which is exactly what Anthony had said about uh, Lepidus. Cassius comes in. Now, this scene is worth uh, studying because so many people have been taken in by a number of things in this play, among them the last comment of Anthony about Brutus, that he was the noblest man in Rome and so on. And I don't think it holds up uh, uh, under more careful scrutiny. Uh, and this scene here is one of those that I think reveals how Shakespeare really felt about it. Cassius comes in. Most noble brother. Now notice brother. That means we're equal. We're equal. Most noble brother, you have done me wrong. And Brutus says, look, I don't wrong my enemies, much less my friends. And Cassius says, Brutus... This sober form of yours hides wrongs. In other words, this is Cassius recognizing, because he himself has been part of the Brutus cover-up, that Brutus is a very deceptive personality. 
he knows how to put on the front and do other things behind the facade. And that's, that's true all through this play. Once he gets caught up in this, in this mimetic conflict, he's constantly dissembling. And you can't tell after a while where the real Brutus is, whether he's just presenting a facade or whether that's really what he thinks. And Cassius put his finger right on it there. This sober form of yours hides wrong. In other words, it's an enforced ceremony. The very words that Brutus had used. And so Cassius is about to get worked up. He's about to say, hey, what's going on here? He's been, he's been chided by Brutus. And Brutus says, almost to point up the truth of what Cassius had just said about how Brutus carefully hides things and covers up, Brutus says, Cassius, be content. Speak your griefs softly. I do know you well. Before the eyes of both our armies here, which should perceive nothing but love from us, let us not wrangle. Let's go into our tents. You want to talk like this? Well, what I'm trying to point out is the character trait of Brutus. He's now, he knows enough about what makes things work in the public order to know that you have to maintain that facade. And he doesn't want to have an argument with Cassius right out there in public. Let's go inside. So inside is where it begins to unfold. Brutus charges Cassius with having a servant that's pulling off some petty swindling and that there's a rumor going around that Cassius himself has what, he, what Brutus calls an itchy palm. And Cassius objects to that kind of accusation and Brutus gets worked up into a kind of moral righteousness. And he says, Remember March, the Ides of March. Did not great Julius bleed for justice's sake? What villain touched his body that did stab and not for justice? What? Shall one of us that struck the foremost man of all this world but for supporting robbers, shall we now contaminate our fingers with base bribes? and sell the mighty space of our large honors for so much trash as may be grasped thus? Now, this is very noble sound. Very noble sound. We murdered for justice sake. They didn't really use the proper verb here. But be that as it may, it's still, he's still saying justice. Justice. We did that for justice. And here you are trying to pull in a little extra cash. And Brutus... Uh, and Cassius says, Brutus, bait not me. I am a soldier, I, older in practice, abler than yourself to make conditions. Now they begin to jockey. Older in practice, abler than yourself to make conditions. And Brutus says, go to, you are not, Cassius. Cassius, I am Brutus. I say you are not. And that's the, this is just like children, exactly like children. I am, I am, you're not. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Just childish. But it's the what, it's a, how this great noble speech descends into this little totally mirror image mimetic bickering. And then we get the thing dissolving and the facade, the moral facade that Brutus had just put on it all begins to show what's really behind it. Brutus says, away, to, Brutus says to Cassius, away, slight man. And now we pick up a little echo that was in that uh, scene where Anthony said we've got to get rid of Lepidus. Anthony's first line in that respect was, this is a slight, unmeritable man. And I think it's an intentional carryover by Shakespeare. You see what they're doing? You see these little echo structures? They're pulling the same game now on each other. This is just exactly... What Brutus and Cassius are doing now is what Antony and Octavius will be doing a little bit later. That's all. Same thing. Away, slight man. Now, what slight man mean? Slight man mean you're a little bit less of a man than I am. Now, Cassius just said, well, I'm a little bit older than you are. And Brutus said, no, you're a little bit less than I am. Let's get this straight. This is really the critical issue. The critical issue is who has preeminence in this little subcultural arrangement, the, the world of the conspirators? And we have a set of doubles, and we need to find out. And Cassius is, is out. 
is it possible that I'm being insulted like it? And Brutus goes into a rage. Here, and notice what it's all about. It is not about principle now. This rage that Brutus goes into has nothing whatsoever to do with principle. He talked justice over here because he was trying to put the best face on it. And now it's pure mimesis. That is to say, it's purely a question of where I stand vis-a-vis you. doesn't have anything to do with justice. Brutus says, Hear me, for I will speak. Must I give way and room to your rash collar? Go show your slaves how choleric you are and make your bondmen tremble. Must I budge? Must I observe you? Must I stand and crouch under your testy humor? By the gods, you shall digest the venom of your spleen, though it do split you. For from this day forth, I'll use you for my mirth, yea, for my laughter, when you are waspish. Ah, that's so wonderful. With a sweep of the hand. Ah, you're, you're a joke. See? You're nothing. I remember Caesar. Caesar, he's infected by the spirit of Caesar. Caesar had said, I'm the North Star, the, the sole unmovable thing in the firmament. Nothing equals me. Well, that's exactly what Brutus is saying. He just learned from the master. Now we see it for what it is. It's just a mimetic conflict. The noble rhetoric was used to, to camouflage it. And now we're getting in even deeper. Brutus says, I did send to you for certain sums of gold, which you denied me. Now we're getting to the issue. All that talk of justice, say, all the highfalutin rhetoric, now we're coming down to the basic question. Why are they having this argument? Well, it's nomadic rivalry, but it's even baser than that. It's coming down to cash. I did send to you for certain sums of gold, which you denied me. For I can raise no money by vile means. And he's what he's accusing Cassius of is raising money by vile means. By heaven, I had rather coin my heart and drop my blood for drachmas than to wring from the hard hands of peasants, dot, dot, dot. Let's not read the rest of that line for a second. This sounds like he's really one of those guys that does not want to take any more pennies away from the poor. You see? I can't do that. And once you, we say, well, now where do you think Cassius got the money? You see, is he, is he just coining it out of thin air? But he says, I can't do that. You read the whole thing, and you get the other. Shakespeare sort of makes him, makes him sound like a makes him sound like a, a, a modern day liberal, and then he comes back and paints the other picture. I had rather coin my heart and drop my blood for drachmas than to wring from the hard hands of peasants their vile trash by any indirection. <laughs> you, you, you think this is some great liberal. It turns out to be Coriolanus. I did send to you for gold to pay my legions, which you denied me. You see? I don't, he says, I don't go around collecting. I'm not, I don't collect the taxes. I'm, I'm basically a read-my-lips kind of a guy. I don't collect it. I just expect it to be here when my troops need it. You collect it. And I sent for it, and you denied me. I denied you not, Cassius said. You did. I did not. And then Cassius begins to soften, and eventually he'll be whining, which is what the, this, this is what required, really. But he begins by saying, Cassius begins by saying, Brutus hath arrived of my heart. A friend should bear his friend's infirmities. But Brutus makes mine greater than they are. You should overlook these little things. I got a few things going out there, you know, but we have a bigger friendship than that, don't we? You should overlook them, and instead you make them bigger than they are. And Brutus says, I do not till you practice them on me. Now, don't tell me this is the noblest Roman of them all. Huh? If so, we've got a very poor picture of Rome. I'll, I don't blow them out of proportion. I might not even notice them, you see, till you practice them on me. So much for all the moral rhetoric. Cassius's one claim to have some little edge up on Brutus was he said, 
I am a soldier older in practice and abler than yourself to make condition. And uh, later on, because that was his one and only claim to superiority, uh, Brutus makes him eat the words. Brutus says, oh, you think you're better than I am. And Cassius later on says, I said an elder soldier, not a better. Did I say better? See? In other words, he has to take it back. And he gets... Uh, he begins to whine and say, oh, well, you're breaking my heart. I thought we were such good friends. And he backs down. And finally he does the gesture that Caesar did to the crowd. He opens, bears his chest, put, gives his dagger, offers his dagger to Brutus, stab my heart. Very melodramatic. Oh, woe with me, stab my heart. You've already hurt me so. Stab my heart. And it's exactly the gesture that's required. It's the gesture of subservience. It's it's what's it's what it, it's what works in the animal kingdom, you know. The the animal shows its throat or rolls over on its back, and the, the and, and and its opponent sniffs and walks away. Because it's all settled, the pecking order is you know is secured, and now we can go on. There's no longer the crisis of doubles, and uh, right away, Brutus softens and he says, "Oh well, I love you after all." Now that it can be Cisco and Poncho, see, no problem. We got it. You got it sorted out. You see, there's no problem here. We can work with this. It's only when it's that. It's only when it's the doubles that the problem arises. But now that we've established a, a, a line of command, we're in great shape. You want to be Tonto? Fine. Got a place for you. Word comes that Antony and Octavius and so on are moving with their troops towards uh, Philippi. Masala, who brings the word, is asked by Brutus if there's anything else he's gotten wind of. And Masala says, By proscription and bills of outlawry, Octavius, Antony, and Lepidus have put to death an hundred senators. Now, there's the counter-conspiracy for you. A hundred senators. And if Brutus is the noble one, we would expect him or somebody on stage to gasp, to say, oh, nobody gasped. Not only do they not gasp, Brutus says very cavalierly, therein our letters do not well agree. Mine speak of 70 senators that died by their prescription, Cicero being one. And we know from early in the play that Cicero was not involved in the conspiracy at all. So this is an arbitrary uh, slaughter of uh, people, many of whom were neutrals to the conflict. In other words, the great triumvirate which will emerge after this conflict is behaving exactly like the mob. The mob killed Sin of the Poet, and these three great Romans are sitting there killing equally uh, disinterested and uninvolved members of the of the political establishment. Brutus continues to assert his superiority over Cassius. There's a question they have, a question of military strategy. Should they go to Philippi uh, to meet the forces of Antony and Octavius, or should they wait where they are until they get there? And Cassius says, we should wait, we'll be more rested, we'll be able to fight them better. And Brutus says very arrogantly, Good reasons must, of force, give place to better. Our legions are brimful. Our cause is ripe. The enemy increases every day. We, at the height, are ready to decline. And here's the big speech. There is a tide in the affairs of men, which, taken at the flood, leads on to fortune. Omitted, all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and in misery. On such a full sea are we now afloat, and we must take the current when it serves or else lose our ventures. One wonders how many British admirals have said this to their, to their uh, underlings on the eve of the great campaign. See how many generals have repeated this sentence and how often Shakespeare, the ghost of Shakespeare has had to turn in his grave at, the, uh, at their failure to comprehend the irony of the speech. 
This is a speech made by the guy who's about to lose the war. And not only that, it's a, it's a speech that is, is filled with the kind of metaphor that Shakespeare crit- criticized as being insubstantial. There is a tide in the affairs of men. Now, you have to start the speech with that line. There is a tide in the affairs of men. You don't want to start at a line earlier, which is, we at the height are ready to decline. You see, you've got to start the speech at the right place. Compare this. There is a tide in the affairs of men, etc., with what Lear says at his most lucid moment at the end of Lear, when, he's, when he and Cordelia are being led off to, to the prison, and he says, So we'll live and pray and sing and tell old tales and laugh at gilded butterflies and hear poor rogues talk of court news and we'll talk with them too who loses, who wins, who's in, who's out and take upon us the mystery of things as if we were God's spies and we'll wear out in a walled prison packs and sects of great ones that ebb and flow by the moon. Now, ebb and flow by the moon is referring to the tidal currents. They come in on the tide, they go out on the tide. In other words, Lear, at his most lucid, sees that whole, it's like what we call the political pendulum. You see, He sees that whole, or historical pendulum. Lear, at his most lucid, sees that as empty of any fundamental meaning. But here, Brutus, uh, who, riding a, a wave that's about to hit the sand, thinks it's very substantial. There is a tide in the affairs of men and so on and so forth. But I would like, before passing on, to pause on this line towards the end of that little passage. On such a full sea are we now afloat. Particularly reference to that uh, floating. Let me quote uh, Gerard here. He says, The vestiges of ritual make it possible for the game to operate by blinding us a little to the fact that it has no anchor in reality. Now, in this, in what we're talking about, the vestiges of ritual is Roman oratory. That is to say, what's going on is insubstantial. It has no fundamental substance to it. But when we hear these ringing rhetorical words, we feel that there's substance to it. Put yourself in the position of a second lieutenant hearing his, his uh, commanding officer before the battle saying, there is a tide in the affairs of men. I, I, you see, if I was good enough, I could make you all raise goose flesh. Even after we know that this, that this passage is nonsense, I could get goose flesh on your arm if I was a good enough actor. By, by reciting it. There is a tide in the affairs of men. I won't try to do it because I'm not any good at it. But I'm telling you, it will work. Which is to say, that's a ritual operation. That's a way of intoning the myth in such a way as to make it seem substantial. And that's why I, I want to share this passage from Juan. The vestiges of ritual make it possible for the game to operate by blinding us a little to the fact that it has no anchor in reality. And he goes on to say, the difference between what Freud saw and what we are capable of seeing today results not from our greater perceptiveness, but from the far greater rootlessness that has developed in the half century separating us from the last stages of Freud's work. In other words, we are on a fuller, we are floating on a fuller sea. Rootlessness. You see, then we go back and read that passage about floating on a full tide, and we realize what's really being said metaphorically is that there's absolutely no grounding anymore. We're absolutely floating. In the penultimate stage of conflictual mimesis, when the two opposing forces now become indistinguishable from each other, begin to orbit one another in the mimetic finale, the motivational energies involved cease to be the previously announced and more or less rational ones 
of political power or material wealth or ideological principle and become instead purely, if secretly, mimetic. There is, in other words, no longer a concrete objective other than that of foiling the rival with whom one is now completely obsessed. With both opponents fixated upon each other, but no longer attached to any independent goal or logic, the whole episode floats in the haze of its own mystifications and only culminates when one of the sides manages to elevate its viciousness to the status of sacred violence. Before Brutus at all rush towards their fate at the end of this play. There's a little scene, beautiful little scene, where Brutus is back at the place where he was, so to speak, before he finally fell into collusion with the conspirators. Brutus says to Lucius, Look, Lucius, here's the book I sought for. I put it in the pocket of my gown. He has obviously been distraught with Lucius for having lost this book, and now he says, well, it was in the pocket of my gown all the while. He asked Lucius to play a, a, a little tune, and Lucius does so, and then he falls asleep almost immediately. And Brutus says, now that Lucius has gone to sleep, which is to say the light has gone out, Lucius really is... The, the symbolic light for Brutus. He goes to sleep, the lights are out, so to speak, and Brutus says, let me see, let me see. Is not the leaf turned down where I was reading? Here it is, I think. It's a beautiful symbolic touch. Of course, it's an anachronism. Brutus, ancient Brutus would have been reading from a scroll and not a book. But Shakespeare's done a wonderful thing here. He's indicated <clears throat> the interruption of Brutus's life. Brutus was a learned man, a thoughtful man, a philosophical man, an educated man, a kind of man who would have reclined at night with a book to read and think, ponder. And now he's trying to return to that kind of life. And the question is, can he? And he says, oh, here it is. I can just go back to where I turned the... The, the page down and, and pick up where I left off. This is where I came in, so to speak. Let me see. Here it is, I think, and at that moment the ghost of Caesar comes in. He cannot go back. He cannot go back to his former existence. He says, how ill this taper burns. I think it is the weakness of mine eyes that shapes this monstrous apparition. And it's the ghost of Caesar who says he will meet him at Philippi. In the next scene, Antony and Octavius are on the plains of Philippi preparing for battle. And we are, are now, we ask where are, the question is, where are they now in respect to this mimetic crisis? Antony says, Octavius, lead your battle softly on upon the left hand of the even field. Now, the even field is the question almost symbolically. The question even field means a level field. It's an indication that, uh, that Antony and Octavius are more or less still on a level plane with one another, which is a dangerous situation. Octavius, lead your battle softly on upon the left hand of the even field. And Octavius says, upon the right hand I keep thou the left. Well, there you have it, in a nutshell. Antony says, why do you cross me in this exigent? And Octavius says, I do not cross you, but I will do so. Now, th what he means by this is, I didn't say that just to cross you. I said it because that's what I want to do. In other words, when he says, I will do so, it doesn't mean I will cross you. It means I, I said that because that's what I want to do. Exactly what a child says. If you have two children and you say, I have a green one and a red one, which one do you want? The first child says green, the second child says green. You say to the second child, wait, you wouldn't have said green except for the fact that the first one said green. Isn't that true? No, absolutely not. I did not say it because of that. I really want the green one. And that is exactly what Octavius is saying. Octavius is saying, it was not a mimetic uh, contradiction. I really want to do this other thing. And it's totally ridiculous. But Shakespeare throws it in just to, to, just to give us a chance to watch it in its operation. 
in scene three of Act Five, Cassius uh, learns the terrible lesson of life, which is what goes around comes around. It's his birthday, and it's also his death day. And it's the day in which the forces which he set loose by being the instigator of the conspiracy come back to haunt him. This day I breathed first, time is come round, and where I did begin, there shall I end. My life has run its compass. It's come full circle. He is the one who set in motion what Gerard calls the conflictual mimesis. He's, he wanted to eliminate Caesar. Uh, thought Caesar. Thought Caesar was no better than himself, and therefore he was better than Caesar. And therefore we must eliminate Caesar. And so he sets in motion the whole conflictual uh, undifferentiation. And now there are no differences. He, he's complaining. In other words, all he wanted to do is dismantle the set of differentiations that were arrayed above him in the social hierarchy. And lo and behold, he's finding that those below him have fallen along with those above him. And Cassius is suddenly surprised to find out that the, that the disrespect for the established distinctions has infected those people who are supposed to be respecting his position in the, in the hierarchy. He says, Oh, look, Titanius, look, the villains fly. Myself have to my own turned enemy. This ensign here of mine was turning back. I slew the coward and did take it from him. In other words, his own soldiers aren't obeying orders, and the, and the one carrying the standard had turned around and was going the other direction. This is the crisis of conflictual undifferentiation right there in front of Cassius, and he's the one that set it in motion. One wants to dismantle the, uh, the, 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 the differentiated system from where I am to the top. In other words, I'd like to sit on the board of directors of the Museum of Modern Art because I, 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 I want to erase any of those distinctions, right? But I'd also like to walk home at night without being mugged. I want to have it both ways. I don't want them to fall apart below me but I, I'm awfully suspect of those that are above me. Cassius says to Titinius, I see these yonder troops. I don't know if they're friend or foe. Will you ride on your horse out there and come back and tell me if they're friend or foe? Pindarus, who's, who's the servant of Cassius, who himself now wants to be free of his bonded state, lies to Cassius. He looks out. Cassius says, Pindarus, tell me how Titinius is doing out there in the field. And Pindarus says, well, yeah, he's approaching the crowd and they're getting off their horses and he's getting off his horses and there's this shout that goes up and he says, they took him prisoner. They're, they're enemies. And Cassius says, okay, Pindarus, kill me. It's time for suicide. And Pindarus kills him. And Pindarus brushes his hands off and says, I'm never coming back to Rome. And he leaves. In fact, Titinius was, those were friends out there and Titinius was embraced. He comes back. He sees the body of Cassius. And he looks down at the body of Cassius and he says, Mistrust of my success hath done this deed. In other words, Cassius committed suicide because he thought that those were enemies out there instead of friends, but they're really friends. He didn't understand. Mistrust of my success have done, has done this deed. And Masala corrects him, although we don't notice it's a correction until we read it carefully. Masala says, Mistrust of good success hath done this deed. O hateful error, melancholy's child, why dost thou show to the apt thoughts of men the things that are not? O error, soon conceived, thou never comest into a happy birth, but killest the mother that engendered thee. Now, Masala is talking about suicide, but Shakespeare is talking about mimetic desire, if, if I may put it in Gerardian terms. In other words, what is the hateful error? Mistrust of good success hath done this deed. O hateful error, why dost thou show to the apt thoughts, that means the willing, eager thoughts of men, the things that are not? What is the little trick that, that is played on us? It gets us to play this game until we finally suffer the consequences of it. Titinius looks down at the corpse of 
Cassius. And he says, well, they gave me a wreath of victory to give to you, so I think I'll just give it to you. And he puts the wreath, he says, alas, thou hast misconstrued everything, but hold thee, take this garland on thy brow. And boy, does that tell you what Shakespeare thinks about the whole game. The wreath of victory, the garland of victory. And he places it on Cassius, who's the one who got this whole thing started, with the words, Alas, thou hast misconstrued everything. In scene four of Act five, there is the strangest little illumination. It's right before the crisis in which Brutus finally kills himself. You have Cato and Brutus running around this chaotic field of battle. And Cato says, I will claim my name about the field. I am the son of Marcus Cato. Ho, a foe to tyrants and my country's friend. I am the son of Marcus Cato. Ho. And Brutus says, and I am Brutus. Marcus Brutus, I, Brutus, my country's friend. Know me for Brutus. What is going on here? You see, this is the point. This is conflictual undifferentiation. This is the, the maddened crowd fighting wildly on the battlefield. And at that very moment, you have these two people who are, among all the rest of them, utterly indistinguishable from everybody else, asserting their uniqueness. It's absolutely laughable. Girard says, Mimesis is always a project of self-differentiation that seeks to realize itself, especially in the negative stage of violence and the obstacle. The more desire aspires to difference, the more it generates identity. So you get this desperate, it's like, it's like kicking in the quicksand and having it swallow you all the faster. I am Cato, son of Marcus Cato. Ho, and Brutus, I am Marcus Brutus. Marcus Brutus, I, friend of... It's all ridiculous. They're both just sinking in the quicksand of, of, of conflictual undifferentiation. And Brutus finally realizes he's defeated and he falls on his sword. And when he does, he says, Caesar, now be still. Now, I want to focus a little bit on the very last of the play because we have a problem here. Brutus is now dead. Octavius and Antony come along. Octavius says, all that serve Brutus, I shall entertain them. And this introduces the problem. The problem is how to culminate the violence and convene a, an intact, harmonious culture after the Civil War. All that serve Brutus, I shall entertain them. I immediately uh, adopt you into my army. No questions asked. And Anthony says, this was, now we know Anthony's job is to speak the oratory that does what it is required to do. He says, this was the noblest Roman of them all. All the conspirators save only he did as they did in envy of great Caesar. He only in a general honest thought and common good to all made one of them. His life was gentle and the elements so mixed in him that nature might stand up and say to all the world, this was a man. And we tend to believe the speech, but we don't need to. It's not so true. Brutus was envious. Brutus was not the worst, but he was not the best. But this, this speech doesn't have to do with Brutus. This speech has to do with how do you put the toothpaste back in the tube? How do you get, how do you get the culture to cohere again after a civil war? That's what this speech is all about. And Shakespeare has to... He, you know, the two, two plus hours is over. He's got to end the play and get everybody to walk out in a spirit of, well, everything was put together after all. And so he has Anthony give this speech, but we're, I don't think we're invited to believe it. Octavius says, according to his virtue, let us use him with all respect and rites of burial. What does that sound like? That sounds like what Brutus said about Caesar. You see, it's only going to work. Why didn't it work for Brutus? Brutus was able to persuade the mob. It looked like it was going to work. It, the problem was the funeral. There were some people left over, namely Anthony, who didn't buy into Brutus's logic. And they started to be heard in the crowd. And therefore, it didn't, it didn't work. So the question now is the funeral of Brutus. 
can Anthony and Octavius do what Brutus was unable to do? That is, to, to pull a cultural rabbit out of the conflictual hat. Can they perform the mythological, ritual, rhetorical, ideological gestures necessary to bring everybody back into, into harmonious uh, relationships? The key is a unanimity that must replace the reciprocal hostility. Girard says unanimity means that the people suddenly find themselves without enemies and lacking fuel, the spirit of vengeance becomes extinguished. But at the, this very moment, there's no unanimity because the partisans of Brutus's side are still alive. Therefore, the spirit of vengeance cannot be extinguished until they are satisfied. And Octavius says, I adopt you into my army automatically, but still something else has to happen. Unanimity and durability of the new structure of meaning to which it gives rise, will depend on whether or not the victorious faction can adopt as its own the spirit of any of its victims that have been insufficiently anathematized to be thrown to the dogs. That is, any victims that still have mourners among the living. If their victims have been anathematized, they can just kick their bodies into the trench and walk on. It doesn't matter. But if you have victims that have been insufficiently anathematized, that is to say, if people are still living who mourn the death, then you have another problem. Then you must somehow adopt the spirit of your victim. Both Antony and Octavius are now in Brutus's former position. The need to perform the rhetorical and ritual gestures for concluding the violence on their terms, for consolidating the cultural benefits of their victory, leads them to honor and eulogize their vanquished foe. But there's something I want to touch on at the very, the very last line of the play. Octavius, so call the field to rest and let's away to part the glories of this happy day, which we think is Shakespeare's, you know, riding off into the sunset. Except Shakespeare, at this point in his career, is far beyond that. Will is, That's simply not how he sees the world. He's got to put his play to an end here. But something else is, is at work, to part the glories of this happy day. And we wonder, what's, it, what's involved in that word, to part? He means to divide the glories, that is to say, the prestige, the wealth, the political uh, uh, benefits, and so on, of this victory. What does Shakespeare mean by the word part? We can find out a little bit if we go back to a scene that I didn't mention earlier. When Brutus and Cassius are together and both understand that they're going to lose, they, they're not quite sure, but they, it's clear that they feel they're going to lose. And Brutus says to Cassius, if we do meet again, why we shall smile. If not, why then this parting was well made. Cassius repeats the words almost word for word. If we do meet again, we'll smile indeed. If not, tis true, this parting was well made. The word smile has, had a, has been loaded all through this play. This is, Cassius, this is Shakespeare pointing out that if Cassius and, and Brutus win, they will be at each other's throats. We'll smile, that little Cheshire cat smile, that conceals the conspiracy or conceals the, the animosity. If we win, we'll, what we will be parting is the, is the largesse of the victory. And then we'll start to smile at each other. So Octavius says to part the glories of this happy day. The play, Antony and Cleopatra, is in a sense written as an, extent, as an extension of that line. Enobarbus says those lines that I've quoted in earlier sessions. Then, world, <clears throat> thou hast a pair of chaps no more, and throw between them all the food thou hast, they'll grind the one the other. And that final conclusion is intimated in the last line of Julius Caesar. This concludes Reflections on William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website 
at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.